Hi everyone, this is John Myers from the Los Angeles Times, and if you are listening to this and you saw in your podcast feed something pop up for California Politics Podcast, and you are thoroughly baffled either by seeing this or by wondering where the hell we've been, then I'm here with an explanation. Um, and I'm also in a noisy room on the campus of the University of Southern California in LA, where the LA Times Festival of Books has been going on this weekend. So let me see if I can do this quickly. For those of you who didn't get the information about the status of the California Politics Podcast because I put it on social media, I'm sorry, apologies. It's, it was pointed out to me correctly that I probably should have updated the uh, audio feed to let folks know. In, in essence, folks, the podcast is on hiatus, I would call it. And I really do believe hiatus that we can bring back at some point. But the short version of this is that we're still examining some ways at the LA Times that we can improve the production process of the podcast. Um, I have done some version of this podcast through three different journalism jobs over the last 13 years, and uh, it really needs more to keep going. Uh, it has been a labor of love and a great one of mine for all of these years, uh, but as a one-man band of producing it and hosting it, and uh, trying to figure it out into the night on Fridays to get it posted that just was a breaking point there. So I've asked my colleagues at the Times to think a little bit about how we could uh, find our audio production capabilities. There's some ideas for subscriptions. There's some really good ideas out there, and some of you have offered them as well. And we will, I assure you, continue to work on this, but the podcast is on hiatus as a result. We need to figure that out before we're able to bring it back. Now, that said, I saw an opportunity to do what I would call a, a bootleg version of the uh, politics podcast this week. Our good friend Melanie Mason, who you know left Sacramento and our bureau to cover the presidential campaign, uh, was on a panel with me on Sunday, April 14th, where we were talking about Governor Newsom and California politics writ large. And Melanie, of course, because she has covered California politics for so long, was able to take off her presidential campaign hat and come back and uh, join me on the stage. And so I had them record the audio of that, and I thought, hey, let's put that up as a bootleg podcast episode a little bit. So that's what you're going to hear over the course of the next 45 minutes. It's our conversation at the LA Times Festival of Books. Uh, Melanie and I talking and then taking some questions from the audience. And uh, I'll come back at the end with a short programming note. Hello. How good. That's good. Audience participation today, folks. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for joining us. My name is John Myers. I'm the uh, Bureau Chief in Sacramento for the Los Angeles Times. Um, so thank you very much for being here. And uh, to my side, if you were in this venue before, she's back for a return engagement, uh, our politics writer, Melanie Mason. You're popular. I mean, the audience is stacked with mostly my family, so <laughs> it's not a great gauge. I told them earlier they're going to do the wave like it's a baseball game, Dodgers game. Please don't encourage them. So <laughs> Melanie holds a unique distinction because until recently, she was in the Bureau in Sacramento with us uh, for six years and has now moved on to cover the presidential campaign, but knows enough about California politics and the person in charge of California government, Governor Gavin Newsom, to sit and talk with me as well. Uh, one of our other reporters in Sacramento, Taryn Luna, was supposed to be here, is under the weather, so we are sending her good vibes. 
So it's just you and me. You got it? All right, let's do this. Okay, good. It's like the good old days. It is the good old days because what you may not know is that Melanie also worked with me on a podcast that we still hope they're doing. It's on hiatus right now if you've listened to our politics podcast. But um, Melanie and I had a good time talking about, I think, dad jokes, dogs. Yeah, John tells a lot of dad jokes, okay. and so I hope you didn't come for that few this time. But we do want to talk about California politics and the guy running the state of California, Gavin Newsom, the new governor, uh, give you a little bit of an overview of what the year looks like so far, and then get some of your questions about what's going on in this state. You're all California voters, right? Yes? Okay, five of you are California voters. Uh, no, a lot more than that. Uh, the, the state of play is kind of what I want to talk about here. I mean, California, I would say, is poised to be the laboratory of democratic democracy. And I don't mean little d, I mean big D, Democratic Party democracy at this point. It was a historically lopsided governor's race, as you may have seen, where Newsom easily won. It's an electorate in California that I would say um, between Democrats and Democratic-leaning nonpartisan voters, independent voters, is strong majority for Democratic candidates. Um, it was the most lopsided election for Democrats in the California legislature since the 19th century. There are more Democrats in Sacramento than anybody has seen in any of their memories, any lifetimes. There are so few Republicans in the legislature, they easily fit into the first two rows here of the tent. I'm not saying you are the Republicans in the legislature, but that's about the number of seats they have at this point. It's, a, it's been a very tough season for Republicans. Um, at the top of the food chain, in California politics, as I said, is Gavin Newsom, the 51-year-old former mayor of San Francisco, former lieutenant governor. He was really, would you call him the governor-in-waiting for eight years? I mean, it was a long eight years that he had his eye on being the top guy. Absolutely, because remember, he was flirting with running for governor right out of the gate of being San Francisco mayor uh, in 2010 and got those hopes fizzled by one Jerry Brown, who decided that he wanted to be governor again. And so uh, Newsom instead decided to run for lieutenant governor and quickly realized that there's not a lot to do as lieutenant governor. So he spent the last eight years... He'd be in Sacramento every once in a while. He was on Bill Maher a lot. Um, he was, you know, he wrote a book, Citizenville, about sort of bringing tech to government. But he was really not in the sort of ins and outs of governing all the time. Do you know the old joke, what lieutenant governors do? They get up, they make sure the governor has a heartbeat, they go back to bed? I mean, that's really, there are no duties in, in the Constitution for the lieutenant governor. So it was a long wait for him to be there. And I want to talk about his agenda, which is awfully big in a moment. Um, but... His 100th day in office is this week. It's Wednesday. It's that kind of mythical mark of politics. So it gives us a chance to talk about what he's doing and what he hopes to do. Um, I think like the national political scene, Melanie, this one is going to get you to talk about it a little bit. I mean, Democratic lawmakers are here are more solidly liberal, I think, than at any point in modern times. The election of 2018 really brought a wave of the progressive side of the Democratic Party in. Yes, I think that's true, although I will say the mantra that I said for all of the years that I was covering Sacramento, which is not all Democrats are created equal. And there are very different stripes of Democrats that we see in the state legislature. So a Democrat from the west side of Los Angeles behaves very differently than a Democrat from Fresno. And I think that as this, the Democratic caucus in the legislature grew and grew, there was actually, in some ways, those numbers 
are, are a headache for leadership as much as they are a boon. Too many Democrats. Too many Democrats, which I've heard from Democrats. And that's because there isn't this ideological uniformity within the party. And so there is this question of, yes, I think that it's fair to say there was broadly a, a liberal wave um, that happened in 2018, which ushered in uh, Democrats that probably were in swing or even Republican-leaning districts. But the question is, is will they behave the same way as a Democrat in a solidly Democratic district? And I think that that's the tension that the legislative leaders and especially the governor has to navigate. So when we looked at the election season of 2018, um, Melanie and I had a lot of conversations about what do we think define the election ahead and the, the challenge of a new governor and the people who are going to work with the governor, but really the new governor. I mean, it's a major generational change. It was... Um, uh, watching Jerry Brown, who has the longest career in California politics, leave the stage, what would happen next? What would the next California look like? And so, yes, that's how's that my transition. Good, very yeah, good. I'm, I'm riffing here. The, um, Melanie wrote this fantastic series of stories for the paper um, on the next California. We talked so much in the Bureau about what that should look like and what were the topics. I can tell you, you can still read it online, latimes.com slash next California. But give a little sketch of what we were trying to do there and what some of those topics are. And I think they're important because as we're going to talk about in a moment with Newsom's agenda, it's almost as though he read some of that. I would like to think he read some of that. Um, I'll take I'll take credit whether it's um, merited or not. But yes, I think that the conversation we were having in the bureau, looking at the election, especially after we saw in June where it was going to be a Democrat and a Republican in the general, given the lean of California, we knew it was not going to be a real hot horse horse race. And so the question was: is what are the types of issues that we think that this um, election will be defined by? Or even to, to put a finer point on it, what do we think the issues are that's facing California that perhaps are not being talked about um, by politicians and candidates, but are absolutely going to be on the next governor's desk. Um, so with John and with our editors and with a lot of sort of a lot of talking in the newsroom, we sort of identified what we saw as four key areas that the next governor would have to deal with. Uh, the first being uh, the likelihood of a recession coming and more broadly California's tax structure, which is extremely dependent uh, on the wealthiest Californians, uh, which it means when the economy is doing good. When rich people are doing good, the state is doing great. And when there's a downturn and rich people are just doing okay, the state's finances bottom out. So what does that mean? And we will find that out this week. Yes, it's very true. Tax, tax day. day. Uh, the next one was about uh, natural disaster and how much natural disaster has the capability to upend a governor's agenda. Of course, you know we all know that with the fires that have been ravaging the state, earthquakes are always a possibility, floods, what have you. Um, the next governor would have to account for the unexpected and more importantly, maybe spend some political capital before these disasters happen on what can be some very politically fraught decisions, particularly on fires where it comes to land use, where we build, how we build. Um, and, and of course, there's the overlay of climate change over that. The third was the demographic changes and, and the, the fact that California, like the rest of the country, is aging very rapidly and that the fastest growing demographic is the 65 and over demographic. And that has gigantic implications for everything from health care to social programs um, to, to the labor force. Um, and then the last was the changing nature of work, the question of, you know, 
Is there going to be a robot apocalypse? We're not too sure, but there should be these policy conversations going on now about how our education system is ready to absorb these changes, how our um, legal uh, uh, codes around labor, this gig economy, how they're, how we are accounting for the changing sort of um, nature of we're not just having a nine to five W-2 existence. Things are changing. So those were the four big takeouts um, that we looked at. And John, I, I think we're going to get into, sure enough, Gavin Newsom within his first hundred days has sort of waded into this territory. He's waded in and he's added some things. Um, I, I mean, I've been in Sacramento for the last 17 years consecutively. I have not seen anybody put this many things on the table as fast as Governor Newsom has done. I was going to run down some of these and in a moment I'm going to get your help here. Um, very aggressive agenda since January. Uh, January came in. Early education expansion he wants to do. He wants to talk about more subsidized childcare for the working poor. He wants to extend California's paid family leave, if you've ever used that, from six weeks to six months for someone to care for a new child. Um, expand the tax credit for the working poor to a billion dollars worth of tax credits that the state could give out. Wants to expand Medi-Cal, the state's version of Medicaid for the working poor, uh, to undocumented immigrants up to age 26. These are all in his budget. You remember those old TV commercials when they would say, but wait, there's more. That's your part, so get ready. So come on with me. But wait, there's more. Thank you. See, you're going to get the hang of this. He announced in his state of the state he wanted to rethink high-speed rail. He wanted a smaller Central Valley priority for the project and not to do the whole statewide thing. And then, but wait, see, thank you, you're so kind. Uh, he had the promise of sweeping, re rethinking of juvenile justice in California, take juvenile justice out of the prisons, focus more on getting to these young people, changing their lives. That wasn't it. God love you all. Uh, a moratorium, a full stop on the death penalty in California while he's governor, even though voters in the state approved um, keeping the death penalty in 2016, Prop 62. That wasn't it. But well, wait, there's more. And just last week, a promise of some kind of California help for the economy of Central American countries like El Salvador. He went to El Salvador on a trip, almost would replace the federal role that President Trump vowed to end. Uh, and I'm not going to make you do it here, wildfires, keeping PG&E from being bankrupt, reinventing the DMV. There is a lot. By the way, give yourself a hand for it. There's weight. There's more. Yay. Melanie's buying ice cream in the back. Did I say that? Um, there's a lot on that agenda. I mean, that's, that's a four-year agenda for a lot of governors, and this is three months. Yes, and I would say that this, especially hearing you list it out all at once as opposed to reading it news story by news story, it really does sort of land how... Um how exhausting <laughs> it has been this first couple of months in terms of everything he's been rolling out. And I think the first message that he is trying to send to this is, I am not Jerry Brown. Um, you know, it, in some ways, it's very difficult for somebody like Gavin Newsom to follow what is really an iconic political figure here in California. Jerry Brown, of course, was governor for two terms in the 70s and then decided to be governor two terms later. Um, and I think that that he was notorious, particularly I can t speak at least about the um, the, the second go-round when I was watching him, and really picking his battles. And so there would be a lot of incoming 
And Jerry Brown would be very good at, at sort of focusing on the one, two, three priority things that he would do and let the rest sort of go by. Let the legislature handle that. He's not going to comment on every news story of the day. That was just not the way that he was approaching um, governing. And so I think Newsom's all of the above strategy, which he has taken in these first hundred days, is really the antithesis of that. And to me, it reads like somebody who is trying to differentiate himself from really what is an iconic political figure and sort of cut his own uh, his own figure, which is hard. It's hard to identify or to, de to define yourself in contrast to somebody so well known. Well, and what's interesting when you watch the political universe look at the governor's agenda, there's a lot of praise from Democrats and others when he came in in January. There's a little bit of whiplash now. And you will talk to people in Sacramento who will tell you he's going to have to prioritize that list. He's going to have to figure out what those things are that um, people can do a lot of things at once, they can't do that many things at once. And of course the challenge is, is once you prioritize the list, people know not only what you want, but they know what you want, and then how to leverage you to get what they want, which gets me to the other part of this, which is the Democrats in the legislature have taken the governor's agenda, and they didn't just say, oh yeah, that's good, they'll say, but wait, there's more, sorry, joke. Um, they've upped the ante. Uh, they have proposals for full medical of all undocumented immigrants in California. So not just up to age 26, children already covered, full, um, full population, an expansion of social services. They don't want just the paid family leave expansion that Newsom has proposed. They want to have your full salary covered if you make up to $100,000. That's one of the pieces of uh, legislation in the Capitol now. This is all a bit of a test. It seems like, again, back to my um, a test of capital D democratic um, philosophy, this is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, I think the legislators are also learning that there's sort of a new regime in town and trying to make sense of this, right? Because I think that for the last eight years, they were very used to Democratic legislators are, you know, they, they want to spend more money. Jerry Brown says no. They all kind of co complain about it, but they sort of know that that was, Jerry Brown was the backstop. And so now there's this question of, um, okay, well, Gavin Newsom also looks like he wants to have a massive expansion in terms of, of spending, in terms of, of social programs. And so it seems like their instinct is to still go back to what they had been doing for the last eight years, was to get to the left of the governor still. Um, and so I think that the question is, is, is sort of who blinks first? Does, does Gavin Newsom sort of change his tune and sort of maybe adopt more of the Jerry Brown mantra? Does the legislature decide like, okay, we're not going to define ourselves as just solely pure to the left of whoever's in the governor's office? Um, or maybe there's just a completely new paradigm that is set. But I, I think that right now the legislators seem to be repeating the same script, but it's a different player that they're playing against. The things that I laid out with the help of the audience here um, that are on the governor's agenda for 2019, um, Again, uh, immigration issues, um, healthcare issues. We didn't talk about healthcare, by the way. He wants to create an individual mandate for California after the individual mandate was wiped out on the national level, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so healthcare, immigration, death penalty. How do these play on the national stage, do you think? As, as uh, How many Democrats are running for president now? Is it 20? It's 42. Who okay, knows? a lot. Um, but how does that play? I mean, and Newsom would like to be a national figure in a way. Does this give him a platform? I, I think 
think it does, although perhaps not as much as he hopes, because I still think when we're talking to the national conversation, it's still everything is almost defined by Trump. Um, and if not Trump, then maybe the, the candidates themselves. So we saw, for example, the death penalty moves that he made. That got a little bit of national attention. You did see some Democratic candidates sort of wade in and, and make their own um, sort of comments on where they stand on the death penalty. And Trump tweeted about it. But it's not like that became the 2020 topic that everyone was talking about. Um, you know, California has an interesting role to play in, I think, this, the, the national conversation because it has established itself through its elected officials as the heart of the resistance. And anything that was going to be anti-Trump, California was going to be louder and more robust about it. Uh, and in 2018, we saw actually Republicans nationwide campaigning against the idea of California. You would see in places like uh, Nevada or Texas, the Republicans would say, you know, the Democrats just want to turn you into California. I think my favorite line was Ted Cruz yeah. saying yeah. <laughs> that, um, that the Democrats want to make it like California all uh, dyed, uh, dyed blonde hair, uh, tofu or something else, as though nobody in Texas has ever dyed their hair blonde. It was my favorite California dig that was made no sense. There are no Texans in the audience, <laughs> are you? And so I, I do think that Newsom clearly is hoping to maybe capture a little bit more national attention, but the truth is, is that there's a macro narrative going on, and that is who of these 30,000 Democrats running actually is going to be squaring off against Trump, and unless there's a major change of plans, that's not going to be Gavin Newsom. But can we talk for a moment about what happened just in the last 24 hours? So and it's actually not all 24 hours, but in the last 24 hours, the president tweeted about the issue of immigration. If all of you have, you've all read your LA Times today, right? Good, okay, everybody did. Um, this issue of uh, the migration crisis at the border and the president has been saying, let's send these migrants that have come across to sanctuary cities. And of course he's looking at California, he's looking at San Francisco, he's looking at other places in the state. And then his tweet again was about California last night in the 24 hours, you know, and California, horrible taxes, horribly regulated. There's a strategy you could almost argue that the president could continue to play against California, and Newsom takes the bait a lot of times. Because one of the things I did want to talk about the difference between Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom is Governor Brown would ignore some of the presidential universe of California, some of what you've been talking about. Governor Newsom does not seem to go gently into that good night. No, I mean, he, he swings at every pitch, um, and, and Trump throws a lot of pitches our way. I mean, California is a very useful foil to him. San Francisco is a very useful foil to him. Los Angeles doesn't get quite as much antagonism, interestingly enough. But I think that... Um, it's, it's also become somewhat predictable at this point. I, I have found that I think the times that the California versus Trump dynamic has actually sort of broken through and captured my attention now is when either there's an escalation or there's a sort of change from the narrative. And the thing that I'm thinking of is um, when Trump threatened to deny um, uh, FEMA funding uh, because he said that California wasn't maintaining its force enough, we weren't doing enough raking, and therefore we couldn't get the national money, um, federal money, to, to help deal with wildfire um, uh, cleanup. And, and, and just the disasters that had struck us. And that seemed like such an escalation in terms of what a threat would be. It wasn't just a, a, a fulminating against the idea of California. There seemed to be really real consequences. 
And the thing that was interesting to me about him saying that is like, yes, Gavin Newsom came out and said, you know, how horrible this was. But the voices that I found most interesting were the Republican legislators who also put out statements saying that this was that that, that was unacceptable. Because, you know, a lot of these disasters, they're happening in actual, you know, Trump country in California. And there is Trump country in California. I know that, you know, when we're looking at just sort of the raw numbers, Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents, they, um, there's a lot more of them. But there are huge swaths of the state that lean conservative that have voted for Trump. And they happen to be the ones that often that are really impacted uh, by these natural disasters. Slightly less huge swaths than they used to be, but we'll get to that part in a moment. Um, I want to talk one other part. I want to also talk about um, the broader California political universe and then get some of uh, your own questions into this conversation too. But, but first, I want to talk about uh, the other person that has an interesting dynamic that we're watching um, in state governance now, and that is uh, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, the governor's wife, uh, the first partner. She rebranded the job from first lady to first partner. You wrote a profile of her early on and talked to her about what she thought that role was going to be. And it strikes me as that, that we may have no one who's ever been as the spouse of a governor in the state the way that she might be. It is fascinating to see how she's decided to define her role. And just by deciding to call it first partner, when, when, you're, when she's asked why first partner, um, she says it's because it's a more inclusive title, right? It's an anticipation of one day when there might be an LGBT governor or a woman governor, and so first lady is, may, not, may not just be accurate in the future. But when I asked her, I said, well, partner, that implies to me that you see yourself kind of as a, on unequal footing. Um, is, are we, is this kind of a two for the price of one deal, um, which of course has some pluses and minuses, as anybody who followed the careers of Bill and Hillary Clinton would know. Um, and she really backed off of that. I think that she is aware that there's a very fine line that she can walk, which is that she's tremendously influential in, the, in, in, in her husband's administration. She has very defined policy thoughts and areas that she wants to weigh in on, not the least of which is that easy little area of gender dynamics and gender roles, which sure, like that's not fraught at all. Um, and she's decided that that's where she wants to make her mark. But I also think that she recognizes that she isn't an elected official, right? She wasn't on the ballot. And so trying to, to maneuver that and to walk that line um, is, is going to be complicated. It's also worth noting, it's not like there have been first ladies in the past who haven't been influential. I mean, Anne Gus Brown um, was tremendously influential, essentially, and essentially was the top aide to, to her husband. If you um, wanted to get to Jerry Brown, you had to talk to Anne. Absolutely. But she was very much behind the scenes. You didn't really see her all that much at her own events. It wasn't, it, she wasn't like a, a public surrogate. And of course, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you had Maria Shriver, who was a well-known figure in her own right. And so I think that we see see Jennifer Siebel Newsom not as completely in uncharted territory, but I think as a new iteration of what a first lady or a first partner could look like in the state. And I think that she really wants to distinguish herself from what we've seen from the, the previous women in that role. A few weeks ago, uh, she did an event at the state capitol in Sacramento, and um, one of our reporters went up and asked her, uh, how she felt about the paid family leave bills that were in the in the legislature, and did she support them? She goes, "Yes, I support them." And then all of a sudden, you kind of have this feeling from the governor's office of the you know the famous painting, the scream, Edward Munch, because governors don't take positions on legislation that's pending, usually because they try to work behind the scenes to, am I going to get it this way? Am I going to get it that way? And that's a really interesting dynamic. Is that uh, what does that do? Well, first of all, what does it do to that conversation when they go home at night? Right. I'd like to be there, like to be able to fly on the wall. But like, what does that do to the governing position if the 
uh, first partner has a position here. The governor hasn't solved it yet. Not to say they're going to be on different sides, but it's a it's an interesting dynamic in governing. Right. Well, I mean, she clearly got out ahead of him in that. I mean, by endorsing, and it was endorsing specific bills. It wasn't, do you support this concept of expanding paid yeah, family leave? Right. It was the, our, our colleague saying, here's a bill number, yes or no? And she said, yeah. Um, and then, but that is, that's not how, you know, at least the last governor did it in terms of taking positions. And it also... Who knows if that if she was speaking for her husband as well at that point? Some, you know, I think she is. She really sees herself as a as a separate and complete figure in her own right, who has, you know, who plays in politics, who has her own political thoughts. But again, is she speaking as a surrogate to Gavin Newsom, or is she speaking for herself? And I think that's something she's going to have to navigate. So I want to talk about the 2020 campaign season uh, before we go to the audience for questions for a moment. Um, and not the presidential part, which you all talked about earlier and are watching every day, but the, what happens in California part. I mean, first of all, we have an earlier primary. All of you know that, right? It's the March 3rd primary. Uh, our attempt, again, to be relevant in the presidential sweepstakes. Are we going to be relevant in the presidential sweepstakes? Because I'm kind of like this. I'm not making predictions. All right. We don't do that anymore. I'm, yeah, right. <laughs> it's, but it is very hard to do that. It is very hard to do it because of the other states that go in front, because California is so large. Adver uh, advertising campaigns in California statewide are awfully expensive. Now, some people would say you could go grab delegates for the Democratic nomination in this community or that community. The rules are a little complicated there. Um, but think about this. There will be ballots in the hands of people in California when the caucuses and primaries in the early states are going on. And if you're a Kamala Harris, you could bank some of those votes ostensibly or some other kind of candidate. I mean, I think that's going to be watched. But there's also an impact on the rest of the ticket. Legislative races, congressional races, they all have to decide um, if they're running again or the people who are going to run against them this summer. They have to, the filing season to run for Congress or the legislature in California opens in September. They will not have been in the job very long to actually figure everything out before they have to run again. Everything gets moved up in this presidential sweepstakes. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, you know, the turnout, I guess, is going to be large because it's a presidential primary, but, you know, whether we're going to have a really interesting litmus test moment, especially for members of Congress who are sucked into this presidential sweepstakes. I think that the, 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 you know, the pro for a lot of, particularly I would say Democrats, um, is higher turnout tends to be a more liberal electorate. And so this could be, um, a, you know, a, a good thing for, um, particularly if there's Democrats that are, are trying, you know, trying to break into um, either open seats or challenge somebody, that you might be buoyed by that more liberal electorate. But the downside is, is that nobody's going to be paying attention to you. It's all 2020 all the time. And so I think breaking through is going to be very difficult. And to, to your point, John, it is so expensive to run a campaign in California. It's expensive to run one statewide. It's expensive to run one even down to legislative districts. I mean, we saw million-dollar assembly races. I don't know if we'll see million-dollar primaries, but there are not just the candidates themselves, but interest groups that recognize that, that you know, these are high-consequence positions. And so you're going to see a lot of money being spent, but how you break through what's going to be a very noisy political season on the state level when everyone's going to be talking about the national stuff, I think it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I would argue that the business community in particular is going to be looking at spending money back to my Democrats at every turn in Sacramento. Democratic constituency is largely more liberal than it was in other years, with some exceptions. And they're going to try to figure out, can they find their way through it? I do want to go back to the governor for a moment in the presidential primary and get your thought there, because there was a lot of thought that 
you know, is the most prominent, and I wrote a, an analysis piece that said at one point, I mean, I still think he is, he's the most powerful Democrat in California with his megaphone, with his position, that he could have been a kingmaker in the presidential race in a way, or he could have like, you know, you know, been elusive as to who am I going to give my rose to. Sorry, that's a little Bachelor reference. I've watched one season of that Jeez, show it's ever. It's a dad joke. It's a dad joke. This is why, well, anyway, I miss you, Mel, coming back to Sacramento. Um, but he didn't. He made a decision very early to endorse Kamala Harris, which I was surprised by because I thought he might want to see how the field played out a little bit. I mean, you know, that misses the uh, Mayor Pete wave or everything else out of this. What, do you, is his role maybe then diminished in what happens in California's result because he's already out there with a pick? I think so. And I want to say my first, the, the, my first caveat to this is that I'm highly skeptical of how much endorsements really move the needle in one way or another. Um, especially, I mean, he is, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom is a well-known political figure in the state, but it's not like he, there's a, a Gavin Newsom machine. And I don't know if he's necessarily, like, if there's a turnout, you know, a, a, a field program that comes with, you know, with a Gavin Newsom endorsement. In part because we've never been that kind of state. We've right. never been a machine state. Exactly. And so I think that, you know, it's, it, 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 it's more like a, a momentary press hit, perhaps. Um, but I, I don't know actually how much it, it makes a difference, maybe perhaps on the margin and, and very small at that. But that said, I was surprised. He announced his endorsement at, on MSNBC at like 10 o'clock at night um, on a Friday. It was, if he was looking for maximum impact, he, he did it the exact opposite way. Um, and I, I don't know what the backstory is there. I think that there, you know, it, it seemed like it was a little bit mishandled. Um, I don't think it was a surprise that he endorsed Harris. They have a very interesting political relationship going back to their time in San Francisco. There, of course, was this famous sort of um, agreement in terms of when there was an open Senate seat that came up with when Barbara Boxer retired. There was there was a little bit of a brief stare down of who was going to hop in. And then there was, you know, all right, Kamala Harris will run for Senate and Gavin Newsom will run for, for, for governor. And so they're very closely intertwined. I think that their relationship has ebbed and flowed over the years, but I think it makes sense that he would have endorsed her. Timing-wise, I was pretty baffled by it. Same political consultants, uh, I mean, same team. Well, yeah. and both protégés of Willie Brown, uh, the former San Francisco mayor. I mean, San Francisco politics is a tiny and intense world, and so I think that when you come up and they're of the same generation coming up in that era, they're, you know, they're, they're, their political fates are sort of linked to each other whether they wanted to or not. And so I think that that sort of agreement we saw in 2015 was them, you know, making the best of it. Okay, so one more topic that's uh, a 2020 bit of a wild card, but everybody can visualize it in this audience and everywhere around California, especially if you're a homeowner. Um, and that is Proposition 13, a rethinking of Prop 13. On the ballot in November of 2020 is a ballot measure that is... Um, affectionately called in politics circles the split role measure. You might have heard of this measure, you know what I'm talking about? This is a measure that would ask you, do you want to revamp Prop 13 to allow commercial properties, business properties, to be reassessed more frequently, i.e. their property taxes be raised, um, to split off commercial properties while keeping the protections that Prop 13 gives to homeowners, to personal property taxes. This is really long rumored to be the war of all against all in California politics. The left uh, organized labor on one side, obviously, to reform, revamp Prop 13. Business community laying it all on the line on the other side. And then, of course, the governor, when I gave you that whole list of things he wants to do, has said, I want to broker a deal on this so we can get that measure off the ballot and get a new one, because he's got nothing else on his to-do list. Um, 
this will be fascinating. And, and the electorate that comes out in November of 2020 in this state, which I guess we would believe would be obviously a pro-democratic uh, electorate with Trump on the ballot. I mean, this is a super fascinating blockbuster, $100 million plus campaign that could potentially be coming down the track. And I think that because there is this ballot measure looming over everyone's head and knowing that it's going to be kind of nuclear on both sides, the question is, is how much does Gavin Newsom come in to try and broker a deal? I mean, there are now, I mean, we have seen um, since rules around the initiatives changed, I believe in 2014, there is this ability now for the legislature to come in and basically negotiate a compromise up until a certain point where then people could pull a measure um, off of the ballot. And so the question is, is does, does Newsom step in to this very thorny territory of tax policy, which by the way, Jerry Brown railed against for eight years, um, but notably did not take it on. I mean, I think, you know, Governor Brown knew which battles to pick, and he chose not to pick that one. Uh, Newsom has decided that he wants to wade into it. Um, and so I think that you're going to see a real sort of frenzy of negotiation um, uh, to try and maybe avert what's going to be a very costly uh, ballot by uh, ba ballot battle. Um, but I think that, that, that trying to get that done within a year, I mean, this is something that has vexed California since 1978. Well, and there's a reason Jerry Brown didn't touch it, because it was uh, short of his failures running for president. It was the one time he got really gobsmacked by the California political world, where he was on the other side of it with the surplus money in Sacramento, and then became a born-again tax cutter, as he called himself, and embraced it. You know, Jerry Brown, he went everywhere. That's a different... It's a different conversation. Um, but how many of you, just by show of hands, have heard that this ballot measure is coming? You're a super engaged that's audience. Awesome. And um, I think the stakes are high. The amount of money that's on the table is high. And I'm not talking about campaign money. I'm talking about the amount of money it could bring into the coffers of the state. Of course, on the other side, the business community says it could be the death knell to the California business experience. So it's going to be, um, I think, the marquee thing to watch on our level beyond the presidential race, if in fact it's on the ballot. And I, I tend to think it's gonna stay on the ballot. I think it's awfully hard to get it off the ballot, um, given how hard it is to negotiate some other kind of deal. And, and just to add on to that, I would say that the dynamic to really watch for, in addition to what is happening in the state capitol over this, is what's going on with the economy as this is, is marching towards the ballot. Uh, I think that, that not just with regards to Prop 13 um, or split roll, but really with just how Gavin Newsom has conducted himself in this first 100 days, uh, he strikes me as somebody that knows that the recession is going to come eventually, and he has a limited amount of time to, 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 uh, to announce new spending before he's gonna have to start cutting. And I think the desire for um, maybe some more consistent, stable revenue, which you would see from property taxes as opposed to, say, sales or income tax, um, could really feed into that conversation. So I would say, in addition to the individual politicians, the, the stat status of the economy is going to be crucial. Watch here. So is there a microphone back there somewhere? Yes? Oh, right in the middle, she's got the microphone. If you've got a question, we might have an answer. There's a gentleman right over there. Oh, I'm sorry. If you've got one closer, go there, and then we'll go to you, sir. Sorry. My, my eyes. Yes. It's on. Yep. Hi. Um, so you talked about um, California being demonized by other politicians to other states. Um, do you think it's still true, though, as California goes, so does the nation when it comes to certain um, policies here? 
Yes, I think so. I think in certain ways, I mean, like, let's look at immigration, for example. Uh, John and I were just talking backstage. This is the 25th anniversary of Prop 187, um, which, you know, the pol which was a ballot initiative that was approved that would essentially deny services to people who were in the country illegally, most of which was then found to be unconstitutional. But it was seen as this real um, kind of anti-immigrant sentiment, ref reflection of that. Now we look at the politics of immigration in California, and we see how much that has changed, not just because they think there was a political political awakening among the state's Latino residents, but because white residents in California change their attitudes around immigration. And I think that what we're seeing now in terms of the throes of immigration angst in other parts of the country, I do wonder if we are we're like 25 years ahead of some of these other places now that are just starting to see their populations change, their demographics change, and will the politics of immigration become less toxic as people get more used to a more diverse population in states that hadn't had that before. And I tend to agree with Mel. I would say it's going to be fascinating, though, to test that theory in the universe we live in now where information is democratized in such a way people do not, I mean, look at the presidential race. Nobody wants to wait their turn, you know, and so I can see other places in the country wanting to experiment, but we still have a huge megaphone of 40 million people. Uh, largest state by population, um, I think a lot of things are going to come out of the state. And I do think the way the state deals with um, taxation policy could be one of those. So we'll see. Is there a, uh, I don't know where the microphone is. That gentleman over there had his hand first, and then I'll come to you all before I run out of time, I promise. Is there a mic? Oh, oh, she's got it over there. The gentleman over here in the hat, he's been very patient. I'm sorry, I'm making you run uh, Oprah style here. Oh, look, you get a car, you get a car. I'm sorry, couldn't help myself. Yes, sir. A little pushback Yeah. Uh, about endorsements. I'm new to California, and the editorial page of the Los Angeles Times is incredibly important to me, especially down ballot, in educating me. Good luck. And thank you. And I'll uh, find Nick Goldberg, our editorial page editor, somewhere who will probably thank you for that. Uh, th there's some folks over this way. Oh, there's, a, there's a cluster over here. I know, I've got you on the wrong side, totally. And they don't, they're not related to Melanie, so. Yeah, they, they were waiting longer over there, and then I'll try to get them. We'll try to be really brief here, because I know we're going to run out of time, but i thankful for the question. Thank yes, you. sir. Um, one of the most powerful forces in California is the public works uh, unions. How much do they control, promote, or veto the governor's agenda? Uh, <clears throat> it's a good question. I think in particular the most powerful public employee union is the California Teachers Association. I think Governor Newsom is very close to them. I think you are seeing the governor embrace this critical eye at charter schools as a direct reflection of the CTA's position on charter schools. I think some of the other things are a little harder to measure. Certainly I think public employee labor contracts of other unions are important. Education spending though, which is the single biggest part of the budget, has a bit of a a CTA protection that Governor Brown had on it as well. I still think the teachers are the biggest uh, deal. Um, I don't know that they win every battle, but they win a lot of the battles. And I just want to quickly note that one change to that dynamic is the Janus decision we saw from the Supreme Court, I believe it was last year, which um, struck down compulsory dues for public uh, public employee unions. And I have seen studies that show that that those that the um, unions have lost quite a bit of money. I mean, one of the reasons why they're powerful is because they have a lot of money and they have a lot of people. So they have both the ability to run air campaigns and people on the ground. And if they have less money to spend on political campaigns, that could really alter their, their ability to have political power. So I think we're still waiting to see 
see the effects of that ruling play out. But I know that the unions um, were were terrified of that coming, actually did a lot of organizing in anticipation of that ruling, um, and we're waiting to see what the after effects are. Lightning round. Yes, ma'am. Hello. I've been a native California my whole life, and I always believed that California did leave the nation until recently, starting a couple of years ago with uh, Senate Bill 277, which uh, represents a really small group of people who have children who are uh, damaged and have uh, um, autism or autoimmune disease, uh, like my daughter does. And now we, under Jerry Brown, those people were protected. Um, and now we see a new push in Senate Bill 276, which is going to hearing this month, and you don't hear about it. Um, the the right to choose whether you should get vaccinated or when your child should get vaccinated is going to be taken away from doctors and given to a state board, which is part of Governor Newsom's press to give us all better health care. But, you know, their voices are not being heard. And I've met parents who are so upset they want to move out of our state. And I think we're on the wrong side of this issue. There's a 30-second. I can explain this for people who haven't followed this issue. She's talking about two bills, one that is law, one that is proposed about vaccinations of children. The law that was passed that said that um, a doctor had to submit a form that said this kid uh, is eligible to not be vaccinated. Now there's a proposed bill that says that the state will have a form. The state has a role in saying who can opt out of vaccinations. There's passion on both sides of this uh, um, debate. These are the longest lines of people I have ever seen in my career trying to get into the state capitol to testify on these. There is a hearing coming up on the bill. We'll be covering the bill as it goes through the legislative process in, the, in our bureau in Sacramento. It's a very passionate topic. And so I think you're going to hear a lot more about this to come. I got one more really super quick one, and then I can... I think uh, high-speed rail oh. or the lack of uh, support for the full line was Newsom's first mistake. I'd like to know if you agree and uh, if we can count on him to do the many repairs that need to be made to get it right for Los Angeles to San Francisco. Well, I'll leave it to uh, Nick Goldberg, our editorial page editor, to tell you whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. But I can tell you that I think the governor created a lot of confusion in the way he talked about high-speed rail in his State of the State speech. It sounded like he said, I'm doing something different, and then they were quite unhappy when we wrote that they were doing something different. I think the governor has to figure out how to find the rest of the money. I think the key to high-speed rail is that the funding is not fully identified for it. The federal government does not seem to be willing to open its wallet. As a matter of fact, the Trump administration wants part of the money back. And the private investment money, which is always what Governor Brown said high-speed rail needed, has still not come forward. I think the, pat the project has a long way to go anyway, but I do think, to your point, I think the optics of the governor and the message that he sends is going to be very important to finding that money. And I think the odds are mixed, quite frankly, on high-speed rail at this point. I'm going to get that, oh, one more. She tells me I can do one more. Oh, no, and there's like three hands. Flip a coin. Uh, I feel like it's like, uh, yeah, he's got the microphone. So the, the, unfortunately, you know, yes. So I want to I know whether or not you think Gavin Newsom is Jerry Brown in terms of uh, climate change. Is he going to push California as hard as Jerry Brown did to be at the forefront of the world in um, going solar, going to wind, going to alternative energy, electric cars, et cetera? Yeah, your turn. That's a great question. 
I think that that he talked a lot about climate change during his campaign. I think that he's supportive of what uh, Governor Brown had done. But I think with every politician, you have to figure out what are the issues that animate them. Governor Brown was animated by climate change. He saw this as an existential threat. He traveled abroad to talk about this, to basically have California as a nation state in making regional agreements with, uh, with other countries. I don't know if Newsom is as animated. I think that he would probably... Um, you agree with Jerry Brown and a lot of the, the the policy prescriptions, but when you're talking about where he's going to spend his uh, political capital, I think when he talks about health care, I think when he talks about early childhood education, those are the times where you can kind of see his eyes light up. And I think that that's the key when there's, uh, in sort of understanding politicians, is that they all want to do all the things. But the question is, is what really sort of animates them? And, and, and Jerry Brown was clearly animated by climate in a way that I think few other politicians were. So let me tell all of you in closing a couple of things. First of all, you can find our coverage, I got to do it, at latimes.com slash politics. You can find uh, our national coverage, our state coverage, our essential politics newsletter, which I'm writing today for tomorrow morning, latimes.com slash essential politics email. I got all the promos out of the way. And mainly what I want to tell you is I really want to appreciate all of you being here, not only because you're just here listening to us riff on a Sunday afternoon, but because I, you know, as a political journalist, feel like an engaged electorate is such an important part of this. If you don't know what's going on, if you don't study the issues, if you don't ask the questions, and of course if you don't vote, everything just changes dramatically. It's nowhere near what it's supposed to be. So I think what political reporters really enjoy is finding engaged voters, engaged uh, citizens. So for that, I appreciate it, and thank you very much. That again was a conversation between me and Melanie Mason at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books on Sunday, April 14th on the campus of USC in Los Angeles. Uh, a lot of fun to be back with Mel again. We miss her in the bureau, but she's doing great work for the paper covering the presidential race these days. And again, to all of you who are podcast listeners, I am so grateful for your support all of these years. And yes, the podcast is on hiatus. We're going to go back on hiatus after this bootleg episode of the podcast. I am working to figure out how we can make our production system work better. Uh, we will come back to a lot of you for ideas. Those of you who sent ideas, I really appreciate it. Um, I have seen some amazing support in social media out there for this podcast. And uh, I will continue to offer you ideas on how you can tell uh, folks at the Los Angeles Times how much you care about the podcast and how much you'd like to see it return. So fingers crossed we are going to work on all of that. In the meantime, uh, we're going to go back to our hiatus mode. Uh, again, I'm John Myers from the Los Angeles Times. As always, always, always... Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time.